Hello, I'm Alexandra de Blas, and this is the Regen Report, a podcast about taking regenerative agriculture to scale and diversifying life on the land. episode we visit a worm farm in northeast Victoria supplying farms with worm juice across Australia. We look at government supports for building natural capital on farm and talk with a paramedic, ecologist and policy wonk about why they're working in regenerative agriculture and soil carbon. podcast is produced on the land of the Yalakut Willem clan of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and their continuing connection to land and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to their elders past, present and emerging. Nutrisoil is an organically certified concentrated worm liquid that's produced using a unique vermiculture recycling system. It's distributed and wholesale direct to farmers across Australia. The family-run business is based at Barranduda near Wodonga in Victoria. It was established 26 years ago by Graham and Lynn Maddock, brother Ian Maddock and son Darren. I visited the farm while on a bus tour as part of the Land to Market Farming Matters Conference. We're standing in front of six vermiculture windrows and Darren, who manages Nutrisol's production, explains how the system works. We've got 18 of these beds, they're about 50 metres long. They can stretch out as far as four metres wide, but um, they're all very small at the moment because we've been um, harvesting the solid product out of them, which is the castings. So they're all about third of their normal size. That's, that's what happens each year. We bring, it, bring all our materials in. We, we use a lot of um, high-nutrient waste, whether it's straw, manures, vegetables. We've got some rice bran uh, last week, which was handy. And these are all weather-damaged or high-nutrient products that can't be used elsewhere, but they can be used really well in a vermiculture system. And this is also a composting system. It's a cool composting system. It makes a similar product to your thermal compost, probably a superior product, really. Straw and manure is the base of what we feed. Generally wheat, at the moment we're using barley, just for convenience, it was um, handy, local. And the manures, mostly cow manures and horse manure. I was actually fed out some goat manure last week as well, that was from an organic farm locally, just done. Um, that was a little bit rare, but still a good manure to use. Sheep manure is good, but it's just um, a little bit hard to get it in bulk. <laughs> are worms worms? Or? Oh, they're not, they're not really. Um, these, these worms are compost worms. So reds, blues, tigers, they've got a bunch of different names too. They've all got two or three different types of names. So they're not really fishing worms at all. They don't go on the ground. They don't burrow into the ground, these type of worms. Even though they're an earthworm, you won't find them in the soil. You'll find them in the organic matter in the soil in the top few inches maybe, but generally they're, they're going to be in sort of compost where there's a lot of organic material and moisture. So, so the worms in your veggie garden, these work? Yeah, it's likely they would be, yeah. Uh, mightn't be the same variety, but um, certainly they'll be more of a, a compost-type worm for sure. You've got four windrows here. Yep. How do you set the, the whole situation up and then how do you add to it? Yep, we've got four here and there's, yeah, we've got 18 all up with another four to get put in shortly. But um, we build um, drainage in below all these beds. They flow out through pipes and they collect in collection tanks or catchment tanks, obviously at a lower point. 
We've got three catchments. This is the catchment one, the black tank sort of to the left there. All the liquid that comes out of these catches in there and automatically pumps into um, some recycling tanks behind the warehouse here, which we'll probably have a look at shortly. So we set up, there'd be like a clay base and then plastic and there's eco matting and there's um, ballast, sort of heavy rock ballast. So how long will this row last here? You get a good five or six years out of them generally. <laughs> this will build up with feed and then it'll shrink down once we harvest the solid granular castings or the worm poop out of it, yeah. How so often do you do that? It's probably every 18 to 24 months, yeah. It takes a while, yeah. Once you're starting from scratch, um, it'll be at least 12 months before I harvest anything out of these again. We, we don't like to harvest it out. You've got to um, tear up their home a bit. <laughs> so the castings on the top surface or are they within? Probably the top foot would be mostly feed and the rest is our castings, yeah. We've got our feed feed mixer here, we drive along, we'll feed one side yep. and yep. we encourage the worms to um, move over to that one side. Yes. Oh, okay. And then, so so that's a quarter of it, and then we'll take the other three quarters away yes. once once all the worms have moved to the one side. Yes. And then we just... How long do they take to move to the other side? Oh, you can, phys- <laughs> you can, you can physically move a lot of them with an excavator, yeah. Well, they're living in that top sort of few inches... What additives do you use? I seem to recall that like, you put some lime in, in Yeah, but I didn't even get that far. I got as far as straw, manure, <laughs> yeah, lime and vegetables, crushed minerals, rock phosphate, seaweed, either liquid seaweed or a granular seaweed cake that we get as well. That's all mixed up with the straw, manure and fed out in smaller amounts because too much of those rich nutrients can kill. The product you sell is the castings or is it the weed that's gone off into the tanks? Oh, it's both, yeah. Mainly it's the liquid that we're capturing. The castings are a smaller part of the market for us, yeah. It's probably the better product but it's it's very hard to freight and costly to freight and it's hard to apply. Belt spreader will do the job but um, it won't go through fertiliser spreaders or, or combine seeders, that sort of thing. All of our castings goes to worm hit at the, in the last few years, so 90% of it at least, and they make that into pellets. Which, which can then go out through the, um, the cedar or the fertiliser spreader, yeah. We might just keep moving because yeah, we've yeah. got some walking to do. And then at the end I can talk a bit more about what the product actually does and how you use it. Nicola Maddock manages the business, marketing and education team at Nutrisoil. She's also married to Darren. So with your own home little worm casting you've got happening, I don't necessarily recycle that. What product am I getting compared to what you've producing here? You're collecting all the mucus off the outside of the worm. It's like a vermiwash and we're collecting all the microbes that have come out of the back of the worm. When we feed a real diversity of food, what we're attracting is a diversity of microbes. So the worms are going to break down that broken down food because they eat soil and then you're going to have this worm's gut work out what microbes should come out. They're like a compost tea machine, their gut, they're a bioreactor. So they can increase good microbes by a thousandfold and they can cull the bad ones. But you're going to have some bad ones in there because there's a reason why those bad ones are there in nature. And we call them bad, but they're only bad when they get into a monopoly, when they've got power basically so if you can have that balance right which the worm gets it right then you've got a good product and also what you're collecting is everything's in amino acid form your nitrogen a lot of it is amino acid form and that's what your plant wants amino acids are what create proteins if we started thinking about things that are non-nutrient factors so you're thinking of hormones and enzymes A protein folds, according to what the plant says, into a hormone, an enzyme, 
or an auto-inducing type of compound. So we're getting into like the compound chemical reactions that a worm liquid can make. And they're really important. They create immunity in the plant. What can denature a protein is urea and heat. So if you have bare ground, you've got your proteins. They can't turn into hormones and enzymes and things. Or if you've got a lot of urea, they can denature it as well. So what's happening in conventional agriculture is we've got nutrients out there, but we don't have these other non-nutrient factors. And you know if your thyroid's not working, what can happen to you? Or all of these autoimmune diseases are affecting us. And that's what's actually affecting agriculture as well. Other non-nutrient things like antioxidants, secondary metabolites. So they're doing studies where in a biological system, the secondary metabolites around the root system are much higher in a biological system than what are in a chemical system. And we just don't value that because we still don't totally understand it. So that's what a worm liquid does. It increases the immunity. It increases these non-nutrient factors that a plant can do. And your synthetic fertilisers pumps nutrients into it. But we also know that when you inoculate a seed with Nutrisoil and you have a seed that has a pesticide, a fungicide, or has been sown with MAP, the root system is bigger. So the root system initially you'll find covered with soil and it will put a lot of energy into the ground first and then it will, next to the conventional system, come up later. Your, your superphosphate's going to pop it up first, but it's not going to have that bigger root system. So then that's what people see. So people are like, yes, it's a great inoculant and it is but when you go past that that's when we're running into soil that might be compacted or it might have other deficiencies so trying to see what the follicular application does sometimes is a little bit more difficult but it is doing things we just can't quite see that instant reaction that we love to see that we can at the seed inoculant stage so it's used as a seed inoculant five litres per tonne and it's used as a follicular application five litres per hectare you can add a small amount of nitrogen with that, like five units of nitrogen if, if you would like to. It tickles the system. I mean, microbes love nitrogen. They live and grow from it. That's what nitrogen tie-up is. They hold it in their bodies if there's not enough around, and that's when the farmer can't get their nitrogen because the microbes aren't going to give it back. Any extract, be it the Johnson Sioux, be it a worm liquid, they're all bacterial based. So you're not going to find a lot of fungi when you do an analysis of it, but you'll find lots of different bacteria and all sorts, nutrient cycling, bacteria that break down chemicals, bacteria that fix nitrogen, bacteria that solubilize phosphorus, all these different types of bacteria that have different roles. They've even got bacteria that form packs and they communicate with each other. So we're finding out lots of different things, but people might be concerned that, oh, but I want fungi in my soil. It increases the fungi in your soil when you actually add this bacteria. So you've got to always be looking at what happens to my plant, what happens in my soil. So when you put Nutrisoil under a microscope, you actually don't see a lot. It's really hard to see. You've got to have a very good microscope, but you'll see mainly bacteria. So when you put a plant applied by Nutrisoil, under a microscope, that's when you'll start to see what's actually happening. The bacteria that comes out of the worm and the bacteria that comes out of the Johnson Soup process... Is very, that... They're very similar. They're very similar. Yeah, so yeah. It's really, like, it's, when it's, they it's, have it's, the worms in the system, yeah, it's very similar. Well, we've got comparison studies of the Johnson Soup, ours and another extract, mm -hmm. and it was Terry McCosker that did it for us. Yeah, yeah. but I mean... 
they all had really good things about them. And I can say the one good thing about Nutrisoil, but there's another good thing about the Johnson Sioux. Yes, yes. So Nutrisoil's um, big win out of that was it had the most diversity of bacteria in there. And we're like, yeah, that's awesome. And then someone else will look at the test and it'll say, but it has the most of this in there. And, you know, I think, Lorraine, your principles, the one of ambiguity yeah. is the best because... Oh, but what, yeah, what happens with a worm liquid is it's just got the intelligence. You put it out there and the plant instructs these mm-hmm. microbes to do what they have to do. So we know that microbes now are absorbed through the leaf of the plant. The plant takes them in or is absorbed through the root system of the plant. And the plant actually codes those microbes and, and tells them what they want, spits them back out into the community and then they've got this quorum sensing happening where they start going, oh, hey, this is how we're going to live with this plant. So we're going to get fed by this plant and they're going to help us if we help them. Mm-hmm. So they get an understanding of each other. A worm liquid knows the intelligence with a plant. You've got to always have a seed or a plant with a worm liquid. Together they work out what microbes need to switch on and what microbes need to switch off. So we're constantly working with Ash Martin and we'll say, Ash, we need to find out if we've got this microbe in it. And he'll be like, oh. It's in there, I just need to culture it. We're like, okay, thanks. Yes, so, yes, yes. so it's about creating the right condition for that microbe to come. Yes. So if we put a microbe in a contaminated soil, we'll have all these bioremediation microbes become active. Mm-hmm. So it's stepping back, it's accepting that we can't control it, mm-hmm. but we can help it. Yes. We can help the yeah. system. And that's the problem, like when you first use it and then you're disappointed because it doesn't work and you do something else again. That's the worst thing for an ecosystem, because the ecosystem has to rebuild. Dr Martin Stapper is a farming systems agronomist and was part of the tour. So what uh, Nicola is saying about uh, contaminated sites, like in the first season, the whole system is being uh, decontaminated, all the negatives are taken out, and then slowly the positives are coming back as well. And in my experience, it's like a period of three years. Every farm has one paddock that goes very well straight away, and then two are average and one never gets there. So it's always, every ecosystem is different. Every soil has only history, on, even on the same farm. Nikawa, what about adding sort of fulvic or humic acid to pump up the fungi component yeah, with look, nutrisol? It, it does have fulvic and humic acid in it, and we actually add half a percent of humate to it for storage so that they can be stored correctly. Over time, the microbes can use up the nutrients in it and the pH can change in it. So, yeah, 12 months is probably point of using it and if you haven't used it after that you can refresh it you know you can put some more nutrisoil in it you could put a little bit of molasses in it a bit of it's about food with that resting phase it's also like that all the active microbes take the food out of the liquid but also they remain in a spore stage Mm, and in a spore stage everything is sleeping everything is just sitting there so then when you put it out and get oxygen and life in the soil then the spores multiply if you spray nutrisoil on a on a paddock that's dry, like before a rain, then it just sits there in spore stage. It waits for the first raindrops and then it kicks oh, really? on. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's... Yeah. It's like a speed inoculant. You can put it out when it's dry. Yeah, it just waits. The break of the drought, again, is a typical example. Like, as soon as a raindrop hits the soil, then the whole paddock becomes green. They immediately wake up from spore stage to active stage. Your holistic system, you guys, that grazing management, it's, it's gold. 
So I would put, and I'm underselling our product here, I would put fences and water before I would go using a biological stimulant. That can help you along after that. Um, but if you're sowing, I would absolutely be coating the seed. It's so, so cheap and it really kicks off your biology. So I had someone yesterday, Kate, who's one of the holistic grazers that the buses are going to, and they were talking about their farm. And I was like, I've been to your farm. You've got an abundance of grass. You've got good grazing management. Do you really need this? Yeah. And we're like, well, maybe not. But if you're a more intensive or you didn't have enough grass, there's definitely holistic people who come to us and say it's not working and we go right okay this is this is where we can help but if it's working that's your ideal if you get that right well like after yesterday as well all the talks and comments uh, the farms i've been like on holistic management like with 20 25 year experience good system and oh this is so good but then when you go into the paddocks you see deficiencies and like one property was all grass no broadleaves so then you ask why only grass why not broadleaves this is not the final point Another property, you see barley grass, etc. And that's like with ecosystems, and you have a goal, like with holistic management, you have a goal and you want to go to that goal. But then the ecosystem goes at that level, sits there, and then the management continues, it keeps sitting there. But if you change your goal again, then you can force your ecosystem to go up another level, and then you get rid of the barley grass, you get rid of the grass only, you get some broad leaves, etc. So with holistic management, never be satisfied with what you have. Because we create a new topsoil with the growing plants, which is all carbon, and we can create a system which is the best in the world, aiming higher all the time. And the higher you aim, you get there, depending on the rainfall cycle, of course. Never yeah. be satisfied the way you get. Always aim for more. Always keep learning. This is the warehouse as you walk through. So what happens here in the warehouse? So this is where we fill the Nutrisoil. We can have this warehouse full at certain times of year. So WA are probably our biggest cropping clients and then New South Wales and Victoria are more our pasture clients. So mainly we sell them in the 1,000 litre tanks. We're big with dairy too and we've just started working with sugarcane up in Queensland. It was created for pasture but then the cropping industry worked out how well it worked for them as well. We connect people in the local area who use Nutrisoil who are a thousand litres or more. And the reason we do that is so that they can have farmer to farmer connection. We have Zoom calls with them and we ask people what they did last year, did they have any issues, what they're gonna do this year and farmers help each other out. So it's just a little bit different to traditional agronomy. So farmers find that they don't have anywhere to go in a safe place to try and ask these questions. So the hubs that we've created are really safe place. But it also means that people can get bulk prices. So we used to encourage farmers to contact each other and buy together. So now all of our hubs, bar a few, are at the 20,000 litre rate. So instead of buying a shuttle for 4,950, I've got all the people together and connected them and they're buying them for 3850 So it's a huge saving and they've got mates. So it's pretty good. Can I just say something? Emotional grandmother here. But I just wanted to say thank you so much. And you've just got such a wonderful family that's worked so hard through so much adversity and you're all doing it so well and so happily. Well done. Thank you. <laughs>
Consumers and farmers are becoming increasingly aware of the connection between soil health, food production, the gut microbiome and human health. The opportunity to farm regeneratively to sequester more carbon and build healthier soils makes a lot of sense. To find out what is drawing new people into this space, I spoke with three women working with AgriProof. Tasmanian soils ecologist Teresa Chapman, soil carbon project officers Melanie Adensall from Victoria and Kate Carmichael from New South Wales were in training with Jamie Olson in West Gippsland. They were learning to drive AgriProof's new tractor and soil key pasture renovator and I pulled them aside to talk about their work. Teresa Chapman. Well, uh, prior to this, my tractor experience was on some like super old Iseki on, on a bush block that I used to live on. So driving a modern tractor and operating a modern tractor was really interesting to me. And we're lucky enough to have the Olsen family who were also a bit new to that tractor. So between the sales rep and the Olsen family, we've all been having a fun time just playing with the buttons and seeing the job that it does and most delightfully seeing the other paddocks around growing up their diverse pasture species on this place has been really lovely. So you've been working in Tasmania. What are your impressions coming onto the Olsen's farm and seeing the first property to receive soil carbon credits in Australia? Yeah, it's pretty inspiring. It's not dissimilar to a lot of the Tassie landscape that I work in and it feels really exciting that there's a proof point to the whole carbon story. How do you feel about learning to actually drive the soil key so you can do demonstrations and sow trials yourself? Well, I'm a bit more ambitious than just demonstrations and trials. I'd like to sow all of Tasmania pastures to diverse forage crops. <laughs> so, But yes, it feels really good to have that capability and upskill in that area because I do think there's something magic going on with the diverse plant groups. Why do you want to sow diverse forage crops into all of Tasmania? What, what's <laughs> the thinking behind that for you personally? There's a pretty strong academic connection between plant diversity and soil biodiversity. And soil biodiversity is really important for many, many ways in which the soil functions. It's not a material, it's a living system. It's more like an organism than a material. And so there's something really important, I think, about just keeping that diversity in the system. And then walking around yesterday in one of these paddocks, and we were being covered in these tiny little spiders that were all on threads and just landing on us everywhere. And you could see multiple different species of moths. And Jamie was telling us about some people observing the bird species diversity here, which is higher than you would expect. And no doubt that's reflected across many of the other creatures that we can't see, let alone the soil biology, because that is diverse in the worst paddock. I can't imagine what we're working with here. So I really think we need to get diversity back into our farming systems and a lot of our land area is covered in pasture. So if we can introduce plant diversity back into pastures, because no natural system is, is a monoculture, of course, and not many pastures are monocultures either, but three and four species is pretty different to 12 to 16 species, I think. So Mel, how do you feel about doing the training here and skilling up in terms of the soil key and the tractor? Yeah, it's been great to actually learn how to use a soil key and the nitty-gritty and the specifics around how the soil key actually functions and the rotating blade system. It's good to see how it actually functions and the depth it goes to. You've worked in cropping, you've also worked in land care. How do you feel about now working in soil carbon? <laughs> Just go for the big ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting because soil carbon is the connector piece 
between all of the industries in terms of building soil health. When I worked in Landcare, the key aim of what we were trying to do was increase soil health in productive systems, and we would promote that through things like um, grazing management and pasture cropping, but multi-species pastures is a huge part of that, and the soil key provides a really great system to do that. So when I was working with Landcare, we actually had a lot of farmers build their own drills um, that were like pasture renovation drills, and that were able to sow multi-species pastures. So these are, you know, homemade, home-engineered type systems but five years later we discover the soil key and it is a really great system that does that green manuring effect a bit of aeration it enables the seeding of multi-species pastures and through the conveyor belt system it enables the seeding of different shaped and sized seeds in terms of cropping the cropping industry it's a little bit less applicable but i hope that the use of cover crops and multi-species cover crops in cropping um, to fill those gaps that were previously kept as fallow. You know, 100% green growing ground cover 100% of the time is what we're aiming for, to build soil health and support soil microorganisms and fungi populations. If we can do it in pasture, make it mainstream in grazing systems, then, you know, the next step is getting it into cropping systems. Teresa, what are your thoughts on cropping systems? Well, I'm currently commencing a PhD project in just this area looking at diverse plant assemblages as cover crops. There's a lot of differences, but the main difference, can multi-species do the job in the small window that croppers have to do cover crops? Because there's also approaches like intercropping or relay cropping where you can introduce more diversity into a cash crop scenario. So in a three-month window, you can definitely get good growth and good root growth and presumably boost your soil carbon and your soil biological functioning but is it worth worrying about diverse species in a cropping context? If you grow a really great ryegrass cover crop, is that just as beneficial because it's actually a lot easier to then manage that cover crop to terminate it and get your next cash crop in? So that's the question I'm looking into for my PhD. I don't know the answer yet. I'll let you know. (laughs) So this is basically you grow a crop and then you sow in a cover crop after that. That's generally the way cover crops are used in the cropping industry. In hotter places, it happens over the summer, in colder places over the winter, or anywhere there's a gap. And a lot of farmers are on board with that now. Heaps of people are doing it. Although then you get that feeling working in this space and then you drive around in the winter in Tasmania and you see heaps of bare paddocks. So there's reasons for that. Disease carry over, that kind of thing. But it would be great, as Mel has just said, to see lots more cover, lots more of the year. Even you know, sowing just before you harvest or those sorts of ideas where you just, every time you can, have that living root in the ground. It's just so worthwhile, I think. It was interesting watching Declan MacDonald's series and the degree to which soil carbon decreased when you went from a a pasture to a cropping scenario. Cultivation really increases oxidation of that soil organic carbon supports bacteria to flourish and the breakdown of soil organic carbon so we believe that our Australian cropping systems are in continual decline in terms of their soil organic carbon from the initial cultivation still so in America they've seen sort of the base of that decline and now they're quite um, consistent in terms of their cropping systems but in Australia because we've only been going 150 years we're still sort of declining from the initial cultivation. So we've got to sense how much we can increase carbon with pastures, but do we know how much we can increase carbon with cropping? Depends on rainfall. And lots and lots of other variables. And lots of other variables, (laughs) yeah. So many. 
No. There's, I think the answer to that's no, we don't really know. There is a lot of people doing cropping and doing companion planting and all that sort of stuff that are doing really well and getting good results with irrigation. So they've got a lot of water that they can have nine months continuous improvement. And when they can have something covering the ground for nine months, it's a lot better than most cropping. Being aware what plants work well with each other and what different plants can do to bring up different minerals and stuff like that. So Kate, I'm really interested to know what brought you into this space because you were previously a paramedic, but you did grow up in Western Queensland on a property in Tambo. Yes, absolutely. I grew up on a beef cattle property between Augustella and Tambo. I studied nursing and paramedics at university and then was working in the United Kingdom and came back and I didn't have my registration in Australia. So in the interim, I took a job with an ag tech company up on the Sunshine Coast and realised that actually I was just enjoying that far more than I had been enjoying being a paramedic and decided to transition fully into a career change when I was still quite early on in my paramedics career. But I have to say that being involved in building soil organic carbon and enabling farmers to access soil carbon projects with the Emissions Reduction Fund is quite rewarding in its own way, sort of differently than healthcare, but still... I think with a lot more longevity perhaps. And it is a form of health care in, in another yeah. way, isn't it? It's healing the soil. Yes, absolutely. There, I mean, there's a lot of parallels between how we treat our landscapes and how you know we treat these physical bodies that we exist in as well. Drawing parallels between the variety of bacteria in your gut versus the variety of that also within the soil and how we can use those two to complement each other rather than engaging in practices which diminish both at the same time. We were just talking about cultivation being a strong part of the decline in soil carbon and yet we're here learning how to use a machine that cultivates to a certain extent. But This machine turns over 15% of the paddock's area and introduces a whole bunch of new species that wouldn't kick off the ground if we didn't do that little bit of digging. And the way other people renovate pastures is to spray off the entire pasture and then re-sow the seeds. And that leaves a gap of living roots as well as using glyphosate, which is potentially problematic agricultural chemical. We might even lose it. You know, we're losing some of our herbicides and pesticides in agriculture as Europe becomes more cautious and safety measures become more intense. So... This is a completely chemical-free, and another great thing is that this farm doesn't use any synthetic inputs anymore. You can see the evidence that it really works, and the bit of digging, even if you don't drop seed, I've heard anecdotally that that bit of digging and the aeration that it does, and potentially Jamie's compost theory, is a real boost to the perennial pasture that's already there. And perennial pasture plus annual roots, from my reading, seems to do something really interesting where the roots compete and they're also different shapes and different strategies. And that level of diversity in the root architecture and the way the roots behave and what the roots are putting into the soil is a really important part of the picture combined with the soil fungi and the other biological processes. And that's what I mean when I say something magic. It's not really magic, we just know very little about it. When we were driving up here, I noticed you had a couple of paddocks with sunflowers growing in them, and I've been coming here over a few years, and I haven't seen sunflower crops here like that before. Tell me what's the situation with the sunflower. The last couple of years they've been going really well because we've got our soils to a level where they can support them really well and they actually get up and grow to their full potential. Before they could do that, they would only get a couple of foot and have a little head on them and that would be it. Now we've got enough nutrients in the soil naturally that they can grow to their full potential. And they're looking good. Yeah. No, and it's the good. cattle love them, don't they? Yeah, the cattle love them. And 
they just thrive on it and they go around and pick them off first most of the time and you just notice their coats just turn inside out as soon as you start putting them into a few paddocks with sunflowers in them so yeah nice and black and shiny I like that phrase. I've not heard that before. Their coats turn inside out. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we'd better turn some paddocks inside out. (laughs) You might just want to just say a sentence on the types of soil that Sorky works on and works best on. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Any soil can be improved. If you can grow something, you can improve it. I've done plenty of different soil types. Salty stuff, red stuff, black stuff, grey stuff, yeah, everything. Rocky stuff. It's just... If you feed the natural system, it'll improve. Well, I know Sam Trathui has had a, a few problems with the rocks on his property. How do rocks go with the soil key? First time in, if you're moving a bit quick and take a big chunk out of the rock with the blade, it can either knock the blade back or spit the clutch out. But if you go a bit slower the first time through, loosen it with a little knock of it and then the next blade will come around and kick it out. It's generally not too bad second time planting most of it's pretty soft and just been moved six months ago so then you can come through at a normal pace and then once you get your soil aggregated and everything it generally just pops the rocks up on top and that's it you can either pick them up or go random next time. Jamie what are your thoughts if people felt like it was too expensive to do it twice a year or even annually over the whole place would you still get the effect if you did it once every few years? It's hard to say because I haven't really done many places every few years because when they see the results, if they understand what they're looking at, they're straight back in the next season or the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. Some places with irrigation go three and some even four plantings a year. So the more you do it, the more benefit you get sort of thing. So it sort of almost becomes addictive to the farmers when they see it growing like mm-hmm. it is, they're all over it. The Regen Report is supported by AgriProve and Managing Director Matthew Warnkin gives us an update on recent developments in the Regen Ag and soil carbon space. The Queensland Government has just announced the second investment round of its Land Restoration Fund, which follows positive announcements from the Federal Government in the Budget. Matthew Warnkin. The budget was very encouraging for soils in general and soil carbon in particular, uh, with the government adding support for soil carbon farming and environmental markets. I mean, we saw a real build on last year's uh, low emissions technology statement where soil carbon was identified as one of the five key technology priority areas for government in emissions reductions. And now what we're seeing in some of the the detail in this year's uh, budget is the piloting of financial incentives for good environmental management at the national level. So really encouraging signs at a budget. Tell me a bit about the Carbon Plus Biodiversity Pilot Program. It's worth $23.5 million. How will that work? The Carbon Plus Biodiversity Pilot Program is is an incentive uh, program to reward farmers for improving on-farm biodiversity with carbon projects, so uh, improvement of biodiversity attached to carbon project under the Emissions Reduction Fund. And here what we're seeing is we're taking the theory and applying it in practice in six key regions across Australia in areas such as Burnett, Mary and Queensland, Tasmania and areas in West Australia. So a good diverse range of areas where these where the programs being piloted, really building on some of the early leadership work that the Queensland government was doing under the Land Restoration Fund in demonstrating that there is 
opportunities to monetize a whole bunch of these co-benefits that arise from undertaking carbon projects. It's carbon plus biodiversity. So the carbon element is based on an emissions reduction fund project as per usual. And then you get paid extra on top for the biodiversity. But there's also a trading element. Can you tease that out, how it works? There is a trading element, and this will be some of the detail that emerges as part of the pilot. So where this will become really fascinating is is in terms of actually codifying up what that biodiversity benefit means and and looks like, and then translating or piloting as a a tradable commodity, so like a, a biodiversity credit. So that's where a lot of the innovation is coming from. And what we're looking for is a similar pathway of development that the Carbon Credits Program has demonstrated. By that, I mean there'll be a framework around the measurement. There'll be some initial markets in terms of incentives and actual market for that. But it will kickstart how do you go about measuring that biodiversity aspect and then what the kind of value is around improvement of biodiversity values on operational farms. May has been a busy month with Beef 2021 in Rockhampton and AgFest in Tasmania. What were the biggest takeaways from those events from your perspective? Once again, we're just seeing a large number of leading-edge farmers that are already changing practice to access benefits of building uh, soil carbon. So we see that in terms of some of those young leading farmers and epitomised by Jacinta and Adam Coffey near Miriam Vale. So I caught up with Adam at at FWEEK. I was on a a panel talking about monetising natural capital, which is effectively biodiversity and other environmental co-benefits caught up with uh, Adam and they had a great profile of of their their project on Landline, but they're embracing building soil carbon by changing grazing management and implementing multi-species pasture cropping, chasing those improved productivity gains and also looking at the resilience of their farm and resilience to drought and, and also resilience to flood. Again, great examples of the kind of leadership and caliber of these farmers who are changing their enterprises and seeing those motivations around not only the environmental aspects, but very much commercially oriented and focused. It's interesting because they've got an emissions reduction fund project, but they've also got a project under the land restoration fund, which is a bit similar to what we were talking about with carbon plus biodiversity, which is happening at the federal level. So what are the benefits for them of having an LRF project on top of their carbon project? There'll be a number of benefits for the coffees in terms of participating in that land restoration fund. Firstly, the co-benefits, those environmental and social co-benefits that the land restoration fund is framing up and improving the measurement regime and the, the narrative, they'll be paid out at a different cadence or a different interval to soil carbon. So what that means is earlier recognition of cash flows coming into the, the farm sooner than the measurement regime, which is a big improvement or it's a, it's a good complementary mechanism. The other benefit that we see is as we get more sophisticated at articulating the co-benefits associated with improving soil health, improving water quality, improving biodiversity, that will have a large follow-on benefit in terms of access to markets and improving the way that they're able to talk about 
their landscape management a lot more sophistication and a lot more detail. Queensland has led the way, but we're also seeing new programs in Tasmania and I believe the Western Australian government is also looking at new programs. What's happening in those two locations? Yeah, so here we see a continuing theme around managing biodiversity and the environment now becoming integrated and material to the business of farming. So with that that leadership in Queensland, the Land Restoration Fund, that was a $500 million initiative. Now, Western Australia is running their own land restoration fund with a similar potential payments for environmental co-benefits, biodiversity, water, other social benefits. It's a a smaller program just concentrated on the intensive land use zone in that uh, southwest corner of Western Australia. But importantly, setting up that framework and demonstrating that these co-benefits can be measured and can form part of that additional revenue stream. And even down to at a, at a smaller level, but still noteworthy, is Tasmania and the Tasmanian government putting up potential assistance packages to allow farmers to evaluate carbon farming opportunities on their own enterprise. And I think there's packages of around $10,000 to help that shift. So certainly at AgriProof, we're seeing that elevation in interest in terms of potential co-benefits and, and participation in these projects. And our pipeline continues to increase as more and more farmers are coming on board, looking for opportunities to access at the bedrock, the soil carbon fundamental opportunity, getting paid to improve soil organic carbon, as well as other opportunities around making those other biodiversity aspects bankable. This is the final episode in Series 1 of the Regen Report. It's been a pleasure putting these podcasts together and working with Matthew and the AgriProof team. They're a wonderful and inspiring bunch. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on social media? In the meantime, take care and stay healthy. I'm Alexandra de Blas and this is the Regen Report. Regen Report.